it is fantastic to be here. As I said last night, we've absolutely loved this time, uh, not least for all of us who don't know each other. And um, this morning is not going to be uh, two traditional sermons. You got three of those yesterday. I reckon that's enough for anyone in a weekend. Um, but these, these two sessions, Philip and I want to share something of our personal story. We want to share something of our story, what God has taught us, and, and draw out particular themes which we think are very important for us as a family of believers as we're stretched across the city and hearing the prophetic word we heard earlier as we look to possess further areas. There are certain things we think are absolutely key to this which God has taught us. Now, it's always risky doing something autobiographically. And the big danger is that you draw attention to yourself rather than to Jesus. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of Christ Church London. And anything we share today behind it is the work of Jesus Christ. So he's the one we're wanting to lift up. He's the one we're pointing to. He's the one uh, that we are uh, to be focused on. And there's four things, I think, which are meant to keep us together as we start more and more services across this city. Those four things are firstly, a, con a commitment to God and a longing for his glory. That's that's what we've been expressing as we worship. That's one of the reasons we spend so much time in worship. Is it both reflects our heart, but as you worship, it strengthens your heart and your longing as well. Uh, Yin, I think we've got a, a bullet point for this, uh, for this next piece. Um, if indeed, I can, just see a la I can just see a screen. I'm assuming Yin is behind it. Um, whoever is doing that. Secondly, so the first thing that holds us together is commitment to a, a, a longing for God's glory. The second thing is a shared vision. Our vision to work for the cultural, social and spiritual renewal of the city by starting services right across this city so that everyone has got a community that they can be part of. I, I'm not going to expand on that now. We've talked about it many times. Number three, loving relationships that we care and love for one another. Now, some of those are very close. Some of us have known each other for years. Some of us are just getting to know each other. But the nature of the way that we work together is firstly relationships, it's friendships, and it's love and care for one another. And fourthly, it's shared values. What do I mean by shared values? I mean uh, the shared convictions of how we're to live life together in fellowship in our local services and how we're to live life on mission. And it's that fourth element of values which we want to particularly focus on today or focus on uh, just in this next little while and share a little bit from our story. Philip and I met 32, 33 years ago. <laughs> Thank you Tom Cousins, I saw you start that. It was 32 years ago that we got married, hence my hesitation. Um, we, we met 33 or so years ago. <laughs> Now I'm really getting nervous. Uh, we met in Hong Kong, um, and there's a broader story there. And I've already told Andy Tilsley if he needs a preacher in Cantonese, then Philippa used to speak publicly in Cantonese. So, you know, 
So we've got our great Cantonese preacher. <laughs> yeah. 32 years ago. 32 years ago is what Philip is saying. So we met working with a lady called Jackie Pullinger, English woman who at the age of 22 had felt God say go. So she bought a ticket on a boat going around the world, stopping at as many ports as she could find a ship to stop at and prayed and asked God where to get off. She ended up in the walled city, which was a slum area in the center of Hong Kong. And if you, Chasing the Dragon is her story. It's a book. It's worth reading. Um, but five years later, she finds herself working with triad gangsters, helping them come off heroin. And the work grows exponentially because if you're on heroin for any length of time, you go gaunt because all you spend your money, time and energy on is heroin and you don't eat. So when you've been on heroin and you get taken off heroin through Jesus, you walk around and you bump into someone else and they go to you. These are your triad gangster friends and they look at you and they say, you're fat. And what they meant was you've come off drugs. How did you do it? And they would say, Jesus did it. And uh, as a result, she always had just this uh, queue of men wanting help in coming off drugs. And they did so by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's so much to say, which I'm not going to have time to say this morning. But they came off drugs painlessly, largely, as Jackie prayed with them and taught them also to pray in the Spirit and to pray in tongues. And we may come back uh, to the gift of tongues uh, later. It was the most extraordinary environment. It's where Philip and I met and it's where we worked. Philip for 18 months, me for nine months. It was a life-changing experience. It was a life-changing experience because of the emphasis on worship. We spent hours and hours and hours worshiping Jesus. It was a life-changing experience because of the emphasis on hearing God's voice. And Jackie just seemed to have this ability to get people to listen and then do it. I remember one time in those days, uh, laugh not, uh, I used to lead worship. And, uh, and so I was in, um, I, I remember being in a pre-service prayer meeting with the, there were a whole load of us beforehand. And Jackie comes in late and she is angry. It is possible to be angry and righteous at the same time. And she walked into the room and she looked at everyone and said, you know, she said, you are all really very, very lazy. And I'm like, I remember thinking, I'm 22, I know nothing, but this is not a good way to start a prayer meeting. <laughs> and, uh, and she goes on and she says, when you're on mission, you are getting words of knowledge as you walk through the door. And we have not had words of knowledge in this place for weeks. And you know, it was actually the Holy Spirit. And you, the words of knowledge that came that day. As people woke up and thought, I need to listen. And trusted God and trusted that they would hear his voice. And we just saw the most wonderful things happen that day. She taught us to hear God's voice and then do what he said. There was one day that I got a call. I was at what we called the Wall City Meetings. In the center of the slum was a, a, a room. Uh, you walked there through dark alleys. You were clapping your hands as you went. So the rats ran away from you rather than towards you. You watched your foot because there was open... Um, drains, uh, sewage drains on either side of you. There was water dripping via the electricity cables above you. And you would walk in and to the, and the center of that was this room where the, those on drugs would come twice a week and they would come and they would give their lives to Jesus and they'd be prayed for and the Holy Spirit would fall on them and they'd speak in tongues. And I, there was this call while we were there. 
And someone said, there's a couple of Westerners coming today and they want to speak in tongues. Would you pray for them? And I'm like, okay, we can all pray. I'm happy to do that. Anyway, they walk in later on. They turn out that they are not Jesus followers. Their names, Pierre and Emma, they've been, Pierre, guess what? He was French. Emma, English woman, but they'd met in New York where they'd been in business. They'd sold up everything to go on a trip around the world to find God. They'd gone down to the, uh, they'd gone into the uh, uh, Amazonian jungle. The rest of their group who they were seeking God with had taken hallucinatory drugs, but they'd not found God there. They then went to India and stood at the feet of a guru, but they said they'd not found God there either. And then they came to Hong Kong seeking God. And they said, we'd like to speak in tongues because we think it would be a nice spiritual experience. I said, well, that is true. But the giver of the gift is Jesus. And uh, you do need to follow him before you speak in tongues. And I remember to this day the anger in Emma's eyes. How can you say that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Many good men have died for their faith. And I, I'm backing off like nobody's business. I think, well, yeah, I understand. Maybe I could just pray for you that you would find God. And they say, sure. And what had struck me, though Emma was angry, they were both really sincere. It's possible, isn't it, to be offended by the Christian faith, but also to be desperately looking for God at the same time. And those two were sincere and they were looking for God. And as we shut our eyes to pray, the air in the room changed. It was like it was suddenly full of electricity. And I felt like the Lord said to me, Pierre is going to speak in tongues. And I thought, but he's not followed Jesus yet. And Philippa was there. We'd just met. And Philippa came from a very good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching background. And I remember she's looking at me and she's shooting daggers in her eyes. She knows what I'm thinking. And she's like, don't you dare. <laughs> what can you do? So I thought, I've got to follow, <laughs> I've got to follow God. So I, I say, forget everything I've said. I think the Lord wants you, Pierre, to speak in tongues. As I say that, he gushes out in the languages of angels gushes out. I didn't know, but he'd literally been praying as I said that, uh, Jesus, if you're the way to the Father, speak through me now. And then he, so he prayed out in tongues, and then we just waited, and then he interpreted his tongue. And his interpretation was the, the Father has spoken through the Son, and the Son is the only way to the Father. The Bible study that evening, which Jackie took, was Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Three days later, Emma gave her life to Christ because Jackie Pullinger prophesied over her and Emma said no one knew those things apart from God and me. And so, as you can appreciate, after six months in that sort of environment, you're like, okay, wherever we go, whatever we do for the rest of our life, we're going to do our best to listen to the Spirit and do whatever he says. And I want to encourage us to continue to do the same. If those of you that are in your 20s will forgive me saying this, maybe it's easier to do this in your 20s than your 50s. I don't know. But whatever age you are and whatever background you are and whatever you stand to lose, I would like to encourage you with all my heart, wherever you are for the rest of your life, in whatever part of the world you are, listen to what he says and do it.
you really cannot go wrong. The book says you seek him and you get everything else. You seek everything else, you probably won't get anything. So seek him. So that was just like inscribed, inscribed onto our hearts. And ever since then, and ever since then, the Spirit has played a huge part in our lives. Each one of the churches we started, we started a church in Bedford, a start in Birmingham, and then here in London. Each one of those, it's been the Spirit, it's been experiences of the Spirit which have caused us to do that. Which some of us, some of you know some of the stories. Miraculous, unexpected, literally unbelievable. I'm standing there at the time thinking, I cannot believe what's just happened. As God's opened a door for us. Philippa may share with you in a little while, but her call into politics, she's now a member of the House of Lords. Uh, so this is not something, you know, that we shout about or put on social media. She's in politics because of an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I mean, the funny thing was, in our 20s, it was me who read the political biographies. Hey, uh, Philippa would, well, when I was reading the political biographies, you were watching black and white films. That's what we did on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> there were key moments in the life of this church which have been caused because of encounters with the Holy Spirit. When we went to four services, it was because God spoke to us. Now, it, th my, my concern is, I don't want us just to start that way, but to continue that way. And this isn't just for church ministry, but it's for, which is why I mentioned the politics thing. It's for whatever area of ministry. That as God brings us together into a family like David's mighty men, we are then to be listening to him and to be propelled out in due course. Speaking to someone just earlier, they said uh, they're in between roles. They said, I've had a number of big offers and every one of them I've gone, no. And what they're doing is they're looking for what the Father is doing and to follow him. That's what we do. Final point, and obviously there's so much we could say in terms of foundations, but the final one that we want, I want to cover now is the transformational power of the gospel. Jesus really does change lives, and he really does change lives totally. When I got filled with the Spirit, I'm raised in a Christian home, two praying grandmothers. Who knows what my teens would have been like without praying grandmothers? Um, at 17, I got filled with the Spirit. It was like becoming a Christian all over again and more so. So I literally, I went back to school for my last year at school and people said, how was your summer? And the words that I said uh, literally were, God has totally changed my life. And that was really how it felt. So when I stand here and I talk about the transformational nature of the gospel, I know he changed his lives because he changed my life totally. And my parents were the first people to notice it because of silly little things like doing the washing up <laughs> and clearing the table, which at 17 is a miracle. <laughs> and so I know that from myself. And of course, then we go to Hong Kong and we see tra lives transformed. Now, I would hate to give you the wrong idea. It was not universal. It was not everyone who came to faith, uh, came off drugs and lived a totally... Uh, mature uh, telios type life as, as Hannah was talking about 
or Joel was talking about yesterday. Um, but many did, but often it took a very long time. So our conviction that God changes lives isn't born out of because he always does it within three years. I still remember Arsai. Arsai, when I met him, was uh, running his own uh, little contracting company, uh, but he had been on heroin. He'd first met Jackie Pullinger 18 years before he was set free from heroin. And he came into the program and out of the program and into the program and out of the program and in again. In fact, one time he pulled an air conditioning unit out of a 16th floor window and escaped from the program by climbing down the outside of the building. That is how desperate he was to get out and away from two drugs and away from Jesus. The two, in his mind, were synonymous. After 18 years, somebody was praying with them and had a vision of a little boy throwing stones at a god in a temple in China. They shared this with our sire and he told the story. Yes, that was him. He and some friends had come across this temple. They'd laughed at the stone gods. They'd thrown stones at them. Shortly after that, he became sick. His whole stomach bloated up and he almost died. And in some strange way, the effects of that still had an effect on him many years later as an adult. This person prayed with him. They set them free from those demonic powers that were holding him. He went straight out, took heroin, and never took it again after that and was set free. His life was transformed. But it was after 18 years. So we both carry a conviction of transformational lives and we commit to one another to walk the road however many, uh, however many years it takes. Um, uh, Angela was sharing with me uh, just in the break that there's, there's someone here who um, is not part of this and has, has been here on a retreat for a while, has watched different groups come and go, come and go, come and go. And she was saying to Angela, what's so different about your group? There's something different about the way you love one another. Which I thought was just about the most wonderful. I mean, it's what Jesus said. They will ask, what, how is it that you love one another? And so we love each other, not just because we're friends or because we like each other or because we're stimulating in conversation or fun in terms of the things that we talk about, but we commit to one another for the long haul of you walking with me while I deal with all my insecurities and my habitual patterns of sin. And you have patience with me and you kick me up the butt as well. And you keep me going until I find him in his fullness. And I do the same for you. And together we pursue the transformational nature of the gospel. After being in Hong Kong, we came to Bedford. It was my hometown. I asked Philippa to marry me and said, let's stay for one year and then let's leave and come to London. The Lord kept us there for 10 years. It's one of those moments of grace. If I'd said 10 years, I don't know whether I'd have got a yes out of the marriage question. Uh, but I was able to say with sincerity, although looking back wrongly, that it was one year. And um, that is how we started out. We started a church in the center of Bedford, town, a county town of 100,000 people, which we called the King's Arms. We thought it was sort of cool to sound like a pub, but also be the arms of the king, you know. God forgives us our sins and our mistakes of our youth. 
and we found that we were in our late 20s and we were the oldest people in the church. And uh, so it was just full of people between 18 and 25. And they, the great majority of them were very, very broken. So uh, parents with failed marriages, uh, sexual abuse. Philippa used to run groups for women, you know, like 10 or a dozen at the time, who had experienced some sort of um, largely physical sexual abuse um, and eating disorders, just about everything you could imagine. <laughs> we used to think, yeah, this is just a regular county town. It's not like Bedford's known for its depravity or its need. or and uh, But God taught us over years and through many mistakes, and we could tell you all sorts of stories of our mistakes. God taught us over years the principles that bring about transformation in people's lives. Here's the five that we came out with that to this day I still apply to my life when I get stuck. And I want to encourage you to apply to your life as well. Number one is responsibility. Responsibility, and it goes two ways. Firstly, I take responsibility for every action and thought and word that I live, think, and speak. Ultimately, it is not my parents' fault. It is not somebody else's fault. It is not the, in my opinion, and I think the biblical opinion, it's not even the structures and systems of society, though they matter and though the Bible talks about those as well. When I stand before God, I have to account for my actions, thoughts, and words. And I have found it incredibly powerful in my own life to say I am responsible. Because actually, I can then do the Hannah, what Hannah was talking about last night, which is liberating. If I'm not responsible, I can't repent and I can't get forgiveness. But if I'm responsible, I can. And so for me, this has been hugely powerful. It's probably been the single most powerful biblical idea. Romans 6 particularly talks lots about this. So I'm responsible for the things that I do, but I also have to allow others to be responsible for the things they've done to me. So where we have been the victims of others' uh, inappropriately used strength, then we have to also call them for that. And for many of us, when we've suffered at the hands of others, we struggle to do those two things. It's either all my fault or all their fault. The reality is I have to work out what I'm responsible for, but I also have to at times say, and that person or that, you were entirely wrong. Until you can say that, you cannot forgive them. Until you forgive them, you cannot be free. So you have to be able to do both of those. I'm responsible, you're responsible. And that is a complicated process because emotions confuse us and complicate matters. And that is why in our experience that typically has to be worked out with others and that's why we have a pastoral care team and sometimes it's just done amongst friends and so on. Uh, but number one is responsibility. The second is repentance. Hannah did such a wonderful job. It was wonderful. I don't know whether she's here this morning, but it was wonderful to hear something so simple, so clearly laid out and so important. I actually, and this is a sort of tangent, but I actually started reading a book on sin yesterday. See my exciting reading habits. And I haven't read anything. And I was already starting to think, I think 
maybe we should do a teaching series on sin. Or think about that. Uh, that'll get them coming through the doors. Um, but, I mean, regardless, and I'm slightly, you know, flying unprepared here. But uh, unless we understand sin and call sin, sin, then we can't repent and then you can't get free. So these things are actually really important. So responsibility, repentance, then forgiveness. And forgiveness works two ways as well. I need to receive forgiveness and then I need to give forgiveness. Receiving forgiveness is not about feeling forgiven. It's about knowing, start here in my head, I am forgiven because of the finished work of Christ. I then live with that conviction long enough for my emotions to catch up with it. If you wait for your emotions, you could feel unforgiven for the rest of your life, despite the fact you are forgiven. If you will live with your what you know is true first, the truth does set you free. So you live with truth and your emotions then catch up and then you start to rejoice in how you feel as well as, how, uh, as, well as the reality of what's happened. And in a culture that is so sense-orientated and intuition-focused and not focused on truth. This is, this is deeply undermining to this process for us. And it's one of the ways that we have to be countercultural. It's saying that the finished work of Christ is what I face, put my whole life on, then I allow the emotion as a result to follow. Which is why we can have riotous times of celebration because of his work and our forgiveness. We can go bonkers with delight. That is entirely appropriate. The angels are already doing it. And we can do it too because we know what's been done. And I understand. Yet we have to fight for that sense of forgiveness at times. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, you must fight until you win the battle of knowing you are forgiven and you're liberated. Whenever we're laboring over a sense of our guilt or condemnation, it, it's like this powerful thing that just claws on us. You'll never hear his voice clearly, live free, be a great blessing to others until first you know you are forgiven. Finished. End. I don't care what you've done. If you've read the book, then they've done everything. If you can come up with something that's not in the book, we'll talk. But otherwise, you are forgiven. And we can rejoice as a result. So we combine the finished work of Christ with come Holy Spirit. It's the kingdom come. He's done it. And it's the kingdom coming. God be amongst us now and enable us to understand and see this powerful thing that you've done. So responsibility. This is what I've done. I repent. This is what you've done. I forgive you. You need to feel the emotion. It's not just you need to, it needs to pass your tongue or your fingers. In other words, you need to speak it out or you need to write it down. Until you've said how you feel, you do not know how you feel. That is why so often when someone confesses their sin, when they speak it out, they suddenly start weeping. Because the full force of what I've done or what you've done suddenly hits us. Same with forgiveness. When I speak it out or write it down, it releases us. Responsibility, repentance, forgiveness. Fourthly, identity. 
I wept, Andy, during Blood Diamonds. I've forgotten you'd shown that 14 years ago or whenever it was. But if you were here yesterday morning, Andy just showed this amazing piece. So this radicalised boy with the gun who's probably murdered others That's you know, and, and been on LSD or, sp or whatever. So they wreck their mind, they wreck their conscience, and then they give them guns and they teach them to be killing machines. Child soldier. Child soldier comes across his dad. And his dad looks at him and says, you are my son. And I mean, a lot of us saw it. But God does the same. You are my child. You belong to another age, another, you belong to heaven. You belong to another world. Now come and live as you are. And much of what Paul writes right the way through the New Testament is this is who you are. Now live as if you're that person. More than conquerors, greater is he than is in you than he that's in the world. Uh, the Son of God has come to do what? To destroy the works of the evil one. So you live that way. And uh, the fullness of the Spirit. So those four things, responsibility, repentance, forgiveness, who we are in Christ, and then it comes alive as we're full of the Spirit. So I've ended up preaching those five more than I thought I'd preach them. But I just, I want to remind us again, we're to be a people whose lives are changed and as others come in and find faith, their lives start to change as well. And the focus is not on how fast can we do this? How quickly can we have another 100 people or another 20 people? The focus is on allowing God to change our lives. And as he does that, we, others, it becomes a magnetic thing as a result. That's why, just to say, I'm so excited that we have steps as part of this church. Because what Lars and Meta have done in their genius given by the Spirit, given by God for this, is they've created a course which takes just the sort of principles I've been talking about. And we learned about in our 20s in that funny old church in Bedford where, uh, you know, just with amongst the wreckage and the carnage of people's lives, Lars and Meta have put into this course which can just go and go and go and go and go. So this is a gift from God for us. So we apply it to our own lives and then we steward it as a church for others. And finally, we're convinced about the transformation of gospel, the gospel as a result, the transformational part of the gospel for society as a whole, for society as a whole. William Tyndale found this out. It was illegal to have the Bible in English in the 15th century. But he said, I'm going to put it in English and put it in the hands of every plowboy. In other words, because when it's in Latin, it's for the elites and the elites only. And I'm going to give it to everyone. And as he translates it and he risks his life and the printers who print it risk their lives and the guys who smuggle it into the country because he has to flee the country to do it. As the guys who smuggle it into the country risk their lives, he finds inadvertently not only does he put the scriptures in our hands, but he translates and he creates idioms and language that we still use today. There's no deeper way of changing culture than changing the way people speak. He did it by mistake, I think. He was just trying to get the Bible to people and he changed the English-speaking world as a result. 600 years ago. It's amazing how these things last. Cadbury was not allowed to go to university. He was part of the Quakers and the laws made it illegal for any Quaker to go study. 
And so they said, we'll become outstanding at business instead. And Cadbury said, I want to not just do well, but I want to do good. And the poor are dying on gin. And that is what they're drinking. So I'm going to create chocolate and drinking chocolate in order that they've got an alcohol substitute. And he did it. Uh, caring for his workers. We used to live in Birmingham, in Bourneville, where he started his factory. Those houses now, the houses that he created for his workers, are some of the most aspirational houses for the middle classes in the whole of the area. And he created his... This, the Cabri only stopped services on their site in the 1970s, and their workers complained when they did so. Elizabeth Fry heard that Newgate Prison, just around the corner from the Old Bailey, an area that some of you walk every day of your working lives, was literally a hellhole. So she went to visit, and the jailer said, I'm not coming in with you. If I let you in there, first thing, madam, is I, I require you to take all your jewellery off and leave it on this side of the cells. And secondly, I am not going in with you because I don't know whether I'll come out alive, and I don't know whether you'll come out alive either. She told him not to be so ridiculous, the spirit of Jackie Pullinger in Elizabeth Fry. She went in and her life was changed by what she saw was two women. One mother took the clothes off the child that was her corpse for the women at Newgate Prison would take their children under the age of seven into the prison with them. And she took the ch clothes off a corpse and gave them to another mother whose baby was still alive, who dressed her baby in those clothes. It changed Elizabeth Fry's life. And she would go back regularly to spend the night in prison. And she would ask her other high society friends. She would invite one person to come with them, come with her every time they went to spend the night. I can't imagine the pressure on them, you know, in the dinner party. You know, darling, would you like to come? I'm going tomorrow night. And yeah, everyone else, <laughs> what are they going to say? She's going, do you dare? And, uh, and then she was the first woman to speak in the Houses of Parliament as she gave evidence. She then wrote, and Robert Peel, who was then Home Secretary, changed the laws because Elizabeth Fry said, this injustice will no longer happen in this nation. And so write down history. Followers of Jesus have changed the world around them. Sometimes they've done it by mistake. Sometimes they've done it deliberately, but they've done it which is why we're so excited about taking the Everything Conference from an inspirational conference to a movement of people. We're so excited that Erin is here. We think it's such a brave move to come across the Atlantic, trying to get there in the middle of a pandemic, because it matters that Jesus not only changes individual lives, but changes nations and communities as well. And it's a privilege to partner with so many of you who care about these things as well.